Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also entertain and enlighten. I'm Mika Simmons, and this week on The Happy Vagina podcast, I am ecstatic that we are being joined by British singer, presenter, musician, model, columnist, designer and businesswoman and miscarriage warrior, Mylene Cass. Thank you so much for having me. That's a new one for me, miscarriage warrior. I think that is definitely a title that you deserve after what you have just achieved with your documentary, Miscarriage and Me, which is the main reason why I wanted to talk to you was about your work in that space. It is the most exceptional documentary, which has not only given a voice to women who struggled with the pain and shame of miscarriage, but at a very fundamental level, it helped the miscarriage of justice campaign, which petitioned for better care after every miscarriage, not just three in a row, which we're going to come back to. I didn't know that. I didn't know that women were only taken seriously for their trauma and loss and experience medically after three, but it also demanded standardized tests and treatments so that higher risk women can have better care from the start of conception. Mylene, I really applaud you. I sobbed. I sobbed for you and for all for all women for stop during your documentary. Before we dive in, if it's all right with you, I would like to go right back, right, right back to the start of your, of your life, of your beginnings, way before you found fame, being a member of the pop group Hearsay, to your early years growing up in Norfolk. You, you were born to a Austrian father and Filipino mum. That's right, yeah. That, I guess, would mean that you would describe yourself as being mixed or biracial. Yeah, so I say I'm a mixed race, but biracial is the term now. But I think actually having having daughters and seeing what their place looks like at the moment you know all the challenges that I came up against they don't seem to have them and Mm. that's interesting because I think is that because we live in metropolis is it just because we're in London and it's so cosmopolitan or is it because things are changing or is it because I don't know Mm, mm. well this this category I mean let's just say it from the top every single human being is a mixture of a different race and or cultural background. So let's kind of, we, to a certain extent, but when we come to colour of skin, it's a very important conversation to have because there's so much bullying and racism still that we need to, to work on. Going back to your, I mean, being bi or mixed race of, of that identity, it's actually the fastest growing ethnic group in the UK. And essentially just means that you have two parents from two different ethnicities 
So you are deliciously in the middle with lots of different impact on you. Let's just go to how your parents came to this country. It's so lovely how you say it because it never felt that way um, about being a delicious mix. If you like, you know, there's so many terms that have volleyed in your direction and I don't remember hearing any of those <laughs> nice ones. But my mum came over, um, I suppose, as most people recognise as the wind rush, which a lot of people attribute to West Indies, Caribbean, but actually the Philippines. If you took the Filipino workers out of the NHS, out of the healthcare system, it would be on its knees because it is so heavily reliant on, on the Filipino workforce. My mum came over. She came over when they were calling for nurses. It's just an incredible um, way to be brought up when you see so many of your own aunties as well who are working in the NHS. I understand it from the inside out. I've seen, I just remember just how, how dry her hands always were just from always working. Gosh, we just did a documentary on this as well. The documentary before the other documentary that I did, <laughs> we were just exploring what it was like for her to come over. And it was actually, it's so adorable when you just look at just how wholesome it all is. She'd never seen snow, wanted to travel abroad, and then had her first experience of people not wanting to be treated by her because they weren't sure if she could speak English. It's just all of those cultural divides that she had to overcome. And we didn't really talk about it growing up. We really didn't talk about it until I'd done a previous documentary with her about the origins of the NHS. Mm. So how did you end up in Norfolk as a family? Very good question. My dad, (laughs) my dad joined the Navy at a very young age, an age he shouldn't have joined the Navy at. Did he go in under the radar illegally? So did my granddad. Mylene, I'm fighting this really. <laughs> my grandmother was an Irish immigrant ah. that came over to work in the NHS. My grandfather snuck under the radar and went... Mika, we're related. I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> another life, another life. Yeah, yeah. So he snuck into the Navy. Yes, he did because he's Austrian. He had, his, he had a very difficult time. Can you imagine post-war having an Austrian or a German accent as it was deemed? And he understood it. You know, he said so many people had lost uncles and and fathers and grandfathers during the war. And he had a an Austrian accent. But he also had a, an English father. So he he was like me, extremely mixed and just trying to just trying to find his way. Trained as uh, he wants to be an engineer in the Navy. Well, he went in as an engineer. He later became a frogman which is very prestigious. They don't, you know, it's not, it's not an easy job to become a Navy diver. So he was a real pioneer, you know, for all the paddy divers that you get now and, and for all the people mm. that do a lot of recreational diving and even a lot of but, uh, Navy diving, he, they, they wrote the first rule book because there wasn't one. So they didn't know what the measures would be like when it came to different gases. They didn't know how far you could dive. You know, he helped to prototype a lot of the first ROVs. Mm. In fact, I grew up my job would be to move all the diving weights around the garden. We had, we had a decompression chamber at the bottom of the garden, which is where we used to put our dolls. <laughs> which is, I look at the photos now and you just see it's so <laughs> random. The bridge in Norfolk, he helped lay the foundations of that. He used to have tugboats all over the place, you know, dotted around Norfolk. So it was quite a, an unusual upbringing. But you don't realise it until later on down the line. But my dad, the reason we moved to Norfolk is he needed to be near the sea. A very long explanation. No, no, I was with you all the way. And it's really important and beautiful, actually, to hear about, you know, how your parents grafted immigrants do come here and work or or wherever they end up landing, not just in the UK and work incredibly hard. Do you think that work ethic rubbed off on you? My mum was a simicom laudie and there's two valedictorians in my mum's family and my mum came over and started from scratch and 
I say those words as I hear her saying them to me. Yeah. You know, because whatever your qualifications are in a different country, they don't always apply. But they don't apply when you move to another country. But that work ethic was very much instilled. And when you are the daughter of immigrants and two immigrants at that, it's ingrained in you. You become you become a workhorse, like a cart horse. It's just it's ingrained in you that hard work and education will, you know, give you those opportunities. And yeah, very much to a degree they, they have done, you know, it's very hard. You can't miss a day of school if your mum's in, in, if your mum's a nurse, because, you, you know, they've seen the worst of the worst. Your arm could be falling off and they'll still send you in. And on my dad's side, because he was an engineer and because he was a Navy diver and because he'd worked with people who'd lost their lives, it's a very dangerous profession. I look at all the photos when I was growing up of me, you know, with all the divers in these exotic locations who actually the work they were doing was really hard graph. You know, none of them are alive. They all, they all got the bends. They all died during these diving expeditions. It's very, Mm. very dangerous. Mm. Do you remember being frightened for him when you were young? I remember being terrified because I heard, because he then went on from diving to join the Merchant Navy and become a ship's captain. And I remember hearing that if there's problems with the ship, the captain has to go down with the ship. Mm. and I used to be absolutely please promise me you'll leave the ship promise me whatever happens you won't go down with the ship that's for everyone else dad but not you right I didn't yeah I just thought it was like so unfair but uh I went to sea with him when I was in my late teens he put me down as the ship's writer (laughs) I mean for six weeks I thought it was going to be like a cruise when I look at what I brought with me I brought summer dresses uh, I used to lay all my shampoo out on this little shelf that he gave me. He gave me his cabin. It was not like that. When you go the trade route, let me tell you, we had to get around the Bay of Biscay and it must have taken us three weeks and it was horrific. I was crawling on the floor and all of the other sailors around me were just sort of stepping over me. I was just roadkill. It was horrific. Because it was so choppy. It was seasickness to another level. It was like being on a roller coaster, you know, that fall that you get, just the anticipation of the fall would make yeah. me sick. Yeah. And I'd just watch my dad walking around this cup of tea the whole time. Everyone stepping steady. over me. Oh, I begged him. I begged him. I said, please get me off this ship. And I saw the supplies. <laughs> In fact, I saw the supplies coming on this helicopter where they just do these drops. And my dad, to cheer me up, I'd asked him to get me some magazines. So he'd radioed through for girly magazines. And you can imagine what turned up. And that was it. <laughs> These are not magazines. This is, this is, and I was just like, I wanted to leave. I was like begging, can I leave on the, uh, the helicopter taking everybody out? What an amazing experience though. An amazing experience. It was incredible. And it was the first time I learned to, um, to haggle and do business on this ship. <laughs> because ah. as we came into Egypt, Everybody sort of jumped onto the ship and set up a bazaar in the hull of the ship. Ah. And everybody gave me their, uh, all the sailors gave me their pocket money. Just, you know, could you just go and get my kids some T-shirts? You know, I'm a teenager. I haven't seen anybody. You know, the same, I've seen the same people, the same sort of salty seamen for, for dare I say, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen the same the sailors for like six. Everyone loves a sailor, Mylene. Everyone loves a sailor. <laughs> so I'm walking around like on this, on this ship and like suddenly everyone's coming on and they've set up a market. They've set up a bazaar. So I'm going around and just haggling and getting like pocket money off the top. Do you remember outside of that experience, which was sounds very international, I mean, Norfolk, back then was a predominantly and probably still is 
uh, white region of of the UK. Did you did you have a big Filipino family around you in Norfolk? And did you do you remember feeling different? Did you experience racism when you were growing up? I was different because what are you? It wasn't even where are you from. The question is what are you? And then the only exposure most people had was like Bruce Lee. It was like, well, you're Chinese. And then that's when all the Asian slurs would then come. And then I didn't really understand what I was either because I wasn't pure Filipino like some of my friends were. And obviously I wasn't white. I wanted to change my name. My my middle name is Angela. I wanted I wanted to change my name just to fit in. And, you know, I, things, things as simple as I wouldn't even go out in the sun because I just thought it would make me darker, even though I'm not particularly dark anyway. Mm. It was just, you know, there weren't people that looked like me. I recently saw um, a drag queen, River Medway, who's a mixed mm. race like me. And she said, I had, a, I had a photo of you on my school folder, other than the fact she mm. made me feel a hundred. I had a photo of you on my folder because we didn't have that representation. You were my first example of that representation. And then I was thinking about it. Well, the first example of representation for me was Vanessa May, and she's not even my Asian. You know, it's like trying to find your representation. There was Leia Salonga who became, who was Miss Saigon, but she was pure Filipino and she came from the Philippines. I was born in Norfolk. Yeah. I had a Norfolk accent, but my name was Mylene. It, it, it's just a real sort of dichotomy, and you're, you're, you're eating. Filipino food at home and Austrian food as well, learning how to roll strudel. And then you're growing up in Norfolk where it is, I wouldn't, I would never say it's, you know, multicultural, far from it. Mm. The moment when you wanted to change your name, did you have a conversation with your mum about that? Did you actually ask if you could change your name or was it something that was internalized that you just felt a longing to be something else because you were struggling to feel safe. I didn't want to tell my mum. I didn't want to upset her. My dad worked overseas a lot being in the Navy, in the Merchant Navy. So you become very, very independent. I mean, I became so independent. My dad would teach me how to relight the boiler, how to fill the, the car with oil, how to how to change a tire, mm. how to run a household, just be able to help my mum, how to carve the turkey at Christmas. So you take on a different role. And in so doing, I didn't want to then hurt my mum with the slurs that I was being told. Mm. So you start becoming, you start trying to protect as well within it. But then looking back, you know, in conversations we've had subsequently, I didn't realize that my mom was very aware, you know, she, she was told she had mongrel children. What a slur to say to somebody walking down the road who is helping the community as a nurse. It's a very strange thing when I think from a young age, you learn to not share. I understand fully that you felt very protective of your mum, but I think that it has the ability to actually really change the course of our life to share something, which is one of the things you've just done with miscarriage and me. And, and, and like you, it's sort of taken me most of my life to get to the stage to understand that my choices as a child not to share about things that were painful may have actually diverted my personality or created some, you could say, some kind of fulcrums that I then started to become less open as a human being. It's changed my tolerance levels. So if there's any trouble that, you know, if if my children encounter any kind of racism or any kind of bullying of any kind, it's zero tolerance because I've seen the process, the initial process of speak to the school or speak to the teachers or speak to, you realize that actually there are some dialogues that just aren't understood because you can't explain 
that this is a hurtful thing to say because it used to be argued they're just words. They're just words. Now I think that as mental health awareness is right at the forefront at the moment and people have a better idea of actually there are words you just cannot say because of the power and, and what's attached to those words, a history attached to those words and mm. how you use them. You know, even mm. the fact that you can leave a footprint of those mm. words on your texts, on your Insta, and you'll lose your job. You'll lose a job you never even potentially could have because of what your, let's say, 15, 16 year old self mm. was putting out there. You see celebrities now, you know, sort of sweeping and trying to tidy up their, their Twitter and their social feeds. Well, if those words mean nothing, then why are you doing that? Mm. How you talk and how you put yourself across. It's, you know, it's not a case of words will never hurt me. They'll stop your your career in in their tracks. They'll stop who you could potentially become because you haven't Mm. been given that information. And so I'm very, very strong when it comes to how I put that across to my girls, whether they're receiving those words or what they're writing and how, you know, how it can be perceived. We're in in an absolute epidemic of people going, that's no longer okay for me. And women are saying, it's not okay for a man to talk to me like that when I walk down the street and people who've experienced racism. I mean, just recently within the last couple of years, someone made a comment on, asked if you were pouting on purpose. And, you know, it was completely racist what they said to suggest that you, that you were pouting and you're because of where we're at with it now being okay to stick up for ourselves when it wasn't when we were children, you were able to just slam them down. And also I'm in my forties and I'm a mom and I'm knackered, you know, it's just that again, you just don't put up with it. <laughs> it just, you just think I don't, not today, Satan. You say that Mylene, and I do, I really respect the fact that for you, it may feel like that you're in your forties, you've lived, you've been through it. And therefore why would you tolerate? But there are so many people still trying to find their voice that don't stop doing it because actually I think you really need to know how important it is that you're brave enough to put your head above the parapet. It's really, really important that you that you do that and that you use your platform to call out racism. And you could say, well, everyone's doing it, but it's still a choice for anybody who has a profile that you're still changing the course of your career for the better, of course, but you are still choosing to change the course of your career when you when you speak up. I see it as my children need to see it being said because it all starts from around the kitchen table. So if they see that I say that it's not okay and I'm brave enough to say that's not okay, rather than, you know, what is it they say? 90% what they see, 10% what you say, you know, they're seeing it happening. So then they'll feel safe. I've not heard that. I love that. Yeah. It's so true though, because, you know, you can tell them all day long, but unless they see you doing it, it doesn't really then hit, doesn't really then, you know, land. So I think ultimately everyone needs to know that they have the cheerleader, they have a hype man. And, you know, that first person should be your mum. And so when the girls see me doing that and not standing for it, you know, they're so used to it now that I think they'd be more surprised if I didn't say something. When I look at the 10-year-old me and some of the slurs that I used to hear, I mean, they're pretty horrific. And also it's interesting because now even when I just show movies to my girls that I have a really sort of, I've got a real soft spot for in my heart and, and I've, I've stopped doing that because my girls are like, this isn't okay. Mm. And why is Julia Roberts with that guy? He's like 20 years older than her. And why did she this? And why, you know, you suddenly you're like, well, actually you're yeah. right. And actually Tom Hanks <laughs> shouldn't have gone off with that woman because that woman shouldn't have done that in big. And you're like, oh, 
Yeah. I don't remember it being this controversial or this complicated, but it really is. And the decisions we were making in the 80s, they just, my, my girls won't stand for it now and they're right not to. It's not okay. Well, there's a massive campaign at the moment for us to start reframing actually the women and how they were presented in the 1920s and 30s, which is a little bit heartbreaking for me because I'm like so sentimental. I'm like, I, I don't, I know that those women were being really badly treated and abused and that all of those representations of women were just so like two-dimensional. But there's the tiny bit of me that wants to still believe that, you know, Grace Kelly in the Hitchcock was just a normal human being. Look, we've worked in this industry for a long time and yeah. there have been some incredible allies for me as a working mum, as a working yeah. woman. Yeah. And there've been some shockers and there've been guys you know, and me mm. and my girlfriends who also work in this industry, you know, we all know who they are and mm. slowly it's beginning to be unpicked and, mm. and, and people have those conversations, but people know who they are and people know who, who are the misogynists and people know who the bigots are and people aren't standing for it anymore. Mm. That's right. We're going to take a very quick ad break. And before we do, I wanted to let you know that this podcast was produced in association with Albright, the leading career network for women. Got a mission? A five-year plan or an outrageous dream, Albright will have your back. They had mine. Visit www.albrightcollective.com to join their free community today or download the Albright app available in the App Store. Albright, a global sisterhood for ambitious women. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Coming back to your your career, so from a really young age, you were playing music and musical instruments. You are multi-talented. And then you found fame at quite a young age, actually. How old were you when Hearsay first launched? So um, it was a big fuss over millennium. So it was, I would have been 20 years old. I would have been 20. Before that, I was working, um, I came out of music college and I went into Miss Saigon for a year. That's right. Well, I was like, I am going to be in West End Theatre for the rest of my life. And I did a year and I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I can't do this. I, I, I needed the change. So I, I then became a backing vocalist. So I was a backup singer for Cliff Richards, Katie Lang. I had some of the best times because I love reading music. I love I love just, you know, that pressure on the hoof of we're going to perform it really shortly and being able to be a singer that can read music. You're like gold dust. So that was great. And then I was booked to sing for Robbie Williams for the Brits. And um, I never ended up being his backing vocalist because then I appeared. That's how quickly Hearsay came about. I appeared 
as, as a, a band member in my own right on the same billing. So that was incredible. And then, yeah, we ne- I never looked back. I never had to stand behind any other singers. Yeah, and quite right. <laughs> what would you say the hardest thing was about becoming, because it was Simon Fuller, so there was a period of time when bands were kind of like put together and exploded really quickly. What was the hardest thing about that for you at the time? So when I look back at it, and I do look back at it really fondly because they were the halcyon days. You know, at the time it was, we were doing radio tours where they would put you in a helicopter. It's just absolutely ludicrous. You used to get into something called the Polydor plane where all the, the same acts on your label would all be on the plane. I mean, it's like a scene from a dream, you know, and I, I was still paying off my student loan. And then suddenly I'm on this private jet flying to Switzerland to do a private gig with my mates. The whole thing was just incredible. What would I say was challenging about it? I think because it changes so quickly it's not something I'd moan about. It was just something that didn't know what to do with it all. It was so fast. It was so life-changing. And so you don't know who to trust. Suddenly your world is, you know, it is turned upside down and you are trying to get back to your childhood friends. But at the same time, you can't bring your childhood friends with you everywhere. I get why you see like Justin Bieber hanging out with his mates from before, because you know those people and when you can't get to them, you can feel really destabilized. And as a result, then your family shifts. You start making the wrong decisions. You still treated like children. You're here with your clothes and here is your song and here is where you're going and you get given your schedule. And so you start acting like children. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but you, your responsibilities, I, I know I can see what happens to people and why. And you really have to, you know, have a, you have to really keep a check on yourself. Mm. Did you feel properly supported by the industry? or the people around you in the industry? Oh, my God, are you joking? I, when I look at it now, when I look at it now, was it okay that we were called fat? Was it okay that we'd have publications that could draw circles around your stretch marks? Was it okay that you could pitch people against each other? So, you know, people almost became they'd back a team mm. or a side. You know, you were just sticking mm. pop songs that you hadn't even written. You know, if you break it down to, to really what it is. And mm. sometimes you weren't even singing them, sometimes you were just miming them. Yeah. It, it just became, it was like, sometimes it became like the Hunger Games. Yeah. And would I let somebody draw a circle around, you know, if my daughter, if she had like a muffin top or if she had a, a, a stretch mark? Hell no. Mm. You are a warrior. But we did that. Miley and the warrior. I just, I'm like, I love this version of Miley. But I look back at that time thinking, why was that okay? What, why was uh, that it's okay? Not, it's not okay. Speaking of your children and stretch marks, what happened for you when you had your first two girls? So, you know, how did that impact your career choices? What changed for you when you became a mum in terms of work? Or did it? I'm not a mum. It's a, an open question. Maybe it didn't. No, no, no. Everything changed. I had to find a way because um, I, was, I was a single mum as well. I had to find a way to be able to look after my family and be able to work and have my children with me. Mm. And as every mum knows, it's not easy that, you know, the best of times, but when I had my children, you know, my, my eldest is 14 years old now. So it, at the time I used to get hate mail when I was on TV for, you know, not disappearing to the countryside uh, while I was in, you know, in my pregnancy, you know, in my confinement, I should have been confined to the countryside, sorry, in my pregnancy. And, um, a lot of people didn't like that, but I took my courage from people at like Holly Willoughby and Davina and the mm. All Saints girls and, you know, who were all pregnant and they were out there 
are wearing their bumps of pride and still working. You know, you're not ill when you're pregnant, you're just pregnant. And yeah. now it's an interesting one because I'd go out of, well, I'd go out of my way to never say there were childcare issues or, you know, Ava's not very well or hero. I, I'd, I'd be going out of my way because I wouldn't want to be seen to not be able to be coping with being a working mom and using childcare as an excuse those things that people just assume. Obviously there's lots of campaigning going on at the moment to try and get better childcare in work. And and I think the pandemic has been useful to, to, to show that women can actually multitask with being at home with kids and still do their job really well. So we're in a bit of a different phase, but back then, do you think that the thought process behind, I can't tell anyone that I'm struggling with childcare was that if you said that more than once, for example, eventually your career would, people would start thinking, well, let's not, let's not ask Mylene because, you know, she's got the kids and it's a bit difficult for her. No, because I'm very lucky. I, I could afford childcare, but childcare came with me because I thought if I don't have my children with me and if they're not with me everywhere, I mean, the amount of plane tickets I've got from traveling around the world with my children who I made such a big deal of making sure that, you know, they, they were absolutely everywhere with me. Cause I think that's also the guilt of being a single mom. Wow. And I realized that they don't remember any of it. <laughs> like Ava doesn't remember any of it. She looks at the photos and she remembers the photos now. But at the time I was like trying to, I was killing myself <laughs> thinking, you know, I, I, she has to know she was here. She was with me at every single stage. You know, your girls are pretty amazing. So I would suggest that through osmosis, actually getting to travel with you and be in that space probably had a pretty profound effect on them, even if they can't quite remember it. Oh, for sure. Do you know what? The, the first person who helped me as a working mum was Twiggy. Oh, really? She was amazing. I showed up onto set. I was exhausted. And somebody said, you look tired. And I'd been up with Ava all night. And Twiggy, Twiggy turned around and she said, oh, give it to me. You go on set. She's just a dressing room baby. Like my daughter. She wrapped a towel around her and just started feeding her mango. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God. It's going to be okay. Because oh, if the so women beautiful. give permission for you to do that and yeah. say it's going to be okay, then you know it's going to be okay. And that's why I go out of my way to say to other women and show other women, look, you know, we can do this. In fact, I go out of my way to hire working mums because I know that the job will be done so efficiently and it will all be done by tea time when they have to leave. Yeah. Rather yeah. than, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, I think they're spectacular. I also met a woman, I was up in Edinburgh doing a play, might've been 10 years ago now. And I met this, it was a, it was an immersive play where I was playing the mum of a Down syndrome child. And I had a part-time job working in a, in a church. It was immersive. So it was like a one-on-one. So the people came around, they came to see you and then went to see someone else. And people would like really want to talk to me as though I was this woman. And I had this amazing conversation with one of the audience members who just said to me, you know, when you have children, you just pick up your wing and you just put them underneath and you just take them with you. And it was the first time that I'd understood that that was possible. I made a huge shift. So when I became pregnant with Ava, I started my own children's brand. Mm. Now brands are omnipresent. Children's brands, they're prolific, but mine is the longest running celebrity brand in the UK. So it's 15 years old. So I had to change and I had to make my work fit around my children. Otherwise it was going to be very difficult for me, very challenging for me. And it was making of me. So the brand is now 15 years old 
um, it's taken on many faces. So initially it was at mother care and it stayed there for 10 years before mother care went into liquidation. And now mining class kids has moved over to next. Also, just to say with pretty fantastic grown up dresses too, <laughs> I am wearing a pattern just for you, Mylene. <laughs> Thank you. I love that. I'm all for the pattern. It hides a multitude of they things. They are amazing. But it's been, it, it's things like that, that actually I've learned that things don't necessarily go wrong. They go right. We can have this idea of when I get to this goal or when I finish this, or this is what the end should look like, but there's never the end, you know, whether it's grades, whether, you know, exams, whether it's jobs, whether it's family life, relationships, it's just never the end. They keep on evolving. They keep on changing and you have to change with it. You never get to a point in your life where you go, ta-da, I've done it. It's the end next. Mm. It never happens like that. And so, you know, I suppose in a roundabout way, I'm trying to say it's the journey, not the destination. But I just think that all the things that happen to me, rather than thinking that wasn't meant to happen, I try and draw in it and try and bring that in to my working life or my family life. Otherwise it just becomes a massive struggle. I think when it really does get hard though, for any working mom or any mom is, you know, the wheels start to come off when your kids get ill or if they forget something at school and you're like, Oh, it's supposed to be at meeting at nine and now I've got to go and drop off a pee kit. And it's just all those things that you just don't foresee, but I've just learned, I have learned because I've had to not to sweat the small stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you're giving them this huge gift of being open-minded. And I think that is, that's really what you're talking about is you've had to learn to be deeply open-minded and fluid, you know, in order to have a life beyond your wildest dreams, but also, you know, have the container of a family unit, which is, it's a balancing act. And of course, you've now spoken very widely about the period of your life where you not only had your two young women, girls, but you also had gone into a new relationship with Simon and were trying to have another child together and that you had repeated miscarriages at the beginning until your next baby did arrive eventually. How did that documentary come about, Mylene? What was the osmosis of it? So I put up a post about my miscarriages after I saw Chrissy Teigen put up her post because I couldn't believe the level of criticism she was getting for putting up a picture that was so courageous, so brave, so honest. And the amount of people Mm. that are saying, you know, that should be relegated to the the files of privacy. But I'm like, well, she's right. She shows her proudest moments. And now she's showing her saddest moments. She's actually doing a very generous thing by saying it's not all perfect. There's not one perfect person out there. She's not trying to be. And there's a lot of women out there that I was looking to when I had my first miscarriage. And I was looking to the strong women or who I deem strong. I was looking at Beyonce. I was looking at Michelle Obama. I was looking at these women thinking, God, if it can happen to them and there was nothing they could do to stop this, it was always going to happen to me. Mm. But in so doing, what do you do now when your heart is so utterly broken and you know you'll never be the same again? You can't ever be the same again because you remember that feeling. You remember in your head that that's it. There's another little baby on the way. Mm. It's an incredible feeling. And then suddenly it's gone and you want to honor their memory. But at the same time, there's nothing to remember. Mm. (laughs) It's just what you have to say. Mm. And all these women are going through this every single day. I put that post up because I thought if I'm as ballsy and as brave as I think I am, then why haven't I done it yet? And the truth is I couldn't say the words. I couldn't say it because it was... You know, when something just chokes you, they say that grief is love with no place to go. 
and it just didn't have anywhere to go for me. Mm. And an estimated one in four pregnancies, and this is based on actually quite random data because of course so many miscarriages happen that aren't reported, but an estimated one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. And in the UK, so one of the things that I learned through your documentary is that you're only entitled to specialist treatment if you've lost three. Consecutively. Consecutively. Lost three consecutively, which which actually um, heartbreakingly was your experience. You had four miscarriages in three years. I think really my first question around this is when you first miscarried, Mylene, did you, on, on the first one, did you feel shame about it even then? Because I think there's something, there's a deep rooted, deep, deep rooted shame for women about everything that we experience that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Everything. Full stop. End of podcast. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. But everything to do with our gut, anything that goes wrong to do with our gynecological, reproductive or sexual health that there is, and sexual health actually for men and women or, or all genders. But I think there is deep rooted shame. When you had your first miscarriage, do you remember having any feelings of shame on that occasion? I remember the whole thing just being utterly horrific. You feel like your body has failed you. You feel like you couldn't keep your baby alive. Mm. And all these women that are keeping that pain you know, pushed down, mm. it's, it's, you know, you, you want something so badly and you see, you know, those two lines on the pregnancy test mm. and that's it. You're off. It's, it's mm. happening. And you're thinking nurseries, you're thinking schools, you're thinking names, what they're going to look like. A huge amount of hope. It's, it's, it's hope beyond most other things we could hope for in life. But that's how everyone starts off, isn't it? It's like as soon as somebody finds out they're, they're going to have that baby, you don't then think, I'm, what happens if I don't have this baby? It doesn't even come into your head. Well, it does later. It doesn't the first no. time. As the weeks mm. go on, you know, you're just like on a little cloud and... I, I think it just didn't even occur to me. I think that's what's so awful. It didn't even occur to me. And that's not because I think I'm untouchable, far from it. It's because it just didn't occur to me. It was, we don't talk about it enough. No, no. Oh my goodness. Since it's all happened, it's all we talk about in this household. Not, not, it's not like let's talk about miscarriage today, but it's a case of mm. my girls don't do this at school. And we talk about this around the kitchen table and they talk about it so openly and it's happened to so many of my friends. My girls have been present when the news has been delivered and they've, they've known what to say and they've known how to react. And the fact that they can even do that, um, they're, they're 10 and 14, you know, there's adults who don't know how to, to react or what to say. Some of the things that I've heard or have been said to other women, I, I'm just draw on the floor shocked that anyone would think that that's okay. But we're not prepared for it. We don't talk about it. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to grieve. We don't know how to listen to someone grieving. Mm. It's uncomfortable space. As women, we're very, very good at making people feel less comfortable. Oh, I'm really sorry that, you know, you, you, you've lost your baby. It's okay. It's okay. Well, you know, they weren't born yet. It's not like so-and-so down the road who, who had a, and you go along this, this sliding scale of grief. Is somebody who lost a child going to be in more pain than you or somebody who, who has a stillbirth in more pain than you, someone who lost their grandfather the same year they had a stillbirth. And then, you know, it goes on and on and on. You start adding things to what a sliding scale of grief might look like. Whereas actually your grief is still your grief. 
and you shouldn't have to justify mm-hmm. it. It should just be enough that somebody says, I'm struggling today, I'm in pain today, and you just hold their hand and say, I'm here. Or ask questions rather than shut it down. I think that's one of the things that I've learned. Yeah, but we try to make people feel better, don't we? Some of the things I've heard and some things I've heard people say. Yeah, it's it's coming from a good place, but there's just so much more education around it. At least you can go on holiday. It wasn't even really a baby. I mean, like, how can you say those things? At what point, when they take a breath, does that constitute a baby? Does it make it any less painful? I, I, it's definitely the last taboo, and it was really a really positive thing to be able to make this miscarriage documentary. But also, the pain is about, as you say, the loss of the future and the potential and and, and the hope. And I think one of the things that isn't talked about enough, Mylene, is that when women miscarry or have a stillbirth or even decide to have a termination for very good reasons. One of the things that's not talked about enough is that the hormones that your body has been pumping out to start to get your body ready for that new person coming into the world, they don't just stop when the baby is no longer there. The hormones keep going. So not only are we grieving, all of the things that you've just, you know, recollected, but also the huge surge of hormones and imbalance in the hormones takes about three months to start to calm down again. So your body is still going towards pregnancy, right? Well, if you've had a miscarriage, which was my second miscarriage, or was it my third, crikey, your body still thinks it is pregnant. Yes, exactly. It continues. So you, you, you start producing milk. How cruel is that? So, you know, your baby's gone and your body didn't get the memo. Your body still thinks it's pregnant. It's still growing. Everything else is still growing, but the baby's not alive anymore. And so there are women who walk in to their first scan at 12 weeks thinking that they're still pregnant and they find out that the baby might have died three, four weeks ago. There's Mm -hmm. all these different scenarios that Mm. I didn't even know because when I had my first miscarriage that was horrific but actually my second miscarriage was worse because you just don't realize it can happen and it can happen in a different way you can have ectopic pregnancies you can have missed miscarriages you can there are so many different kinds of miscarriage and that's why I think it should most definitely be taught in schools we teach you what happens from a biological point of view and this is how you make a baby and this is Mm -hmm. what happens if you go to a catholic school if you have sex it's all hell and damnation but what happens if it goes wrong I wouldn't put you in a car and say here are the car keys off you go, have a great time. I'll tell you where the petrol station is and I'll give you, you know, a phone number for if it all goes wrong, a breakdown service. So you can help yourself get out of this tricky situation. With your bodies, there's so much that is just kept hidden away. Mm. I've been so open with my girls from every single point from, you know, from a, uh, there's no question that they can't ask because I think it's so important that there are no secrets because those are the kinds of things that can just destroy you from the inside out. And whether it's about your own body or whether it's about sex or whether it's about alcohol or whatever it's about, just I want to make sure we can talk about it because the misinformation mm. is more dangerous than the information. Mm. And you mentioned Catholicism. Uh, I think Catholicism is in the Philippines, the main religion. Is that oh. still true? 
Catholicism in the Philippines is huge. And I went to Catholic school. You so did? I, I just like, no, nah, this is, these lessons were never going to be taught. No, the sex education for the Catholics has got to be one oh. of the worst in the world, maybe worse in Texas. Yeah. And, and of course, in the Philippines, there's still a big, a big fight going on for women to be able to access good health care and abortion. It's, it's, you know, and I think the Catholic church can not only my background is Catholic. Uh, I'm from an Irish Catholic family, but it does have a lot to answer for. There's many gifts that come through that religion, but I think in terms of women's bodies, sex, shame, pregnancy, abortion, I think the Catholic church needs to, um, to, to catch up actually. I do know what I've stopped blaming everybody. I can't, can't blame it on the church. I can't blame it on the schools. I can't blame it. Look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to teach my children. That's it. That's yes. it. I can't wait for somebody yes, else to do mommy. it. I'm not waiting for anybody else to do it. I was raised Catholic. No. I've not raised my children Catholic. I would love for the schools to turn around and talk about miscarriage and to talk about, you know, we, we've done everything around this table. We've sat down and I've talked about everything. Condoms, we've done masturbation, we've done uh, miscarriage. I've been to the point that my girls were actually in the actual um, documentary because it's just information. But what we do is we attach emotion to it and then we attach shame to it. And then we attach all of our grievances and all the, all the things that we learnt. And I don't want to attach those things to what my girls are going to experience. You know, I, I want to try and make it as just informative as possible, like A oh. and B and C at the start of the alphabet this yes. is the same thing. It's just fact. It's, it's just, just fact. fact. <laughs> I love it. It's just fact. When I tell a story and if I attach my emotion to it, then that is not a gift to my children. That is just a burden. So here are the facts. And this is why people do what they do and say what they say. But these are just the facts. Be free. Be free of all of it. This is just so powerful what you're saying. I love it. Do you think that this is the outcome of you doing the documentary because there is a beautiful scene. Oh God, I cried where you and Simon are talking about how you didn't communicate. So you've, I think you've changed. I, I, I get the feeling, of course. I mean, that's the most ridiculous thing to say. Of course, doing the documentary has changed you. But if I think about that experience that you have with him back then, comparison to what you're saying now. No, I think what I said to the girls about this and what I said to Sam is, we communicated, but we also tried to protect each other. Mm. So I tried to shield him from my level of grief. We both obviously knew a miscarriage had happened and we both knew we were sad. But then in so doing, I didn't know at what point he was less sad than me, if he was at all. So I didn't want to think, right, he looks quite happy this morning. He looks like he's coping. I don't want to then just go and crush him with my sadness. And so you start doing this. I suppose it's like a dance of love it's like the, the kindest thing you can do for your partner, which you're trying not to make their day fall apart and give them more of a burden than they're already feeling. Mm. And he was trying mm. to do the same for me. And the joke is we're both dancing around each other in this very kitchen, not trying to burden each other with our grief. When in fact, we were both just feeling exactly the same way. You know, there were days that he'd come in and he'd put dinner on the table and he'd, you know, he was trying to make me feel loved. And, and I think, oh, he's okay. He's been able to put dinner together. I've not been able to do that today. They're not even mixed signals. Those are signals of, I'm trying to look after you. And yet you can, it's how you interpret it. So to sit down and have that conversation and just say, look, I thought you were okay. It turns out you weren't. And I thought you were okay. It turns out you weren't. Okay. I think we're both okay now, but we'll never be okay with what happened to us because those are little lives lost and they were very wanted. 
you know, four miscarriages is, I would say, a lot. Why was it so important for you to keep trying, Mylene? And I know that that might sound like a really obvious question, but I think it's important. No, it's... Look at my auntie in the documentary. She's like, no more. Exactly. So I was going to ask, is she child-free? Did she, or does she have children? No, she, she had my cousin. But, the, but she didn't want to go further and, and, and keep trying. No, but here's the thing. It makes me question how I ask or introduce myself or speak to other people. I must seem like the most uninterested person you will ever meet because I won't ask you anything about your family life or about your setup because it can be a missile. And I understand that now. So when I was growing up, a lot of people will say, would say to my auntie, you know, an only child, but you're from the Philippines. Why have you got, why have you know, only one child? And she used to say that I was her daughter. She used to say that I was like her daughter. And that's why we're so close. Now I look back and I used to say it to my auntie as well. And I didn't realize every time I was saying that it was like a missile to her. So I have a cousin, John, and he's an only child. And it's because there was another child afterwards and she lost that child and she couldn't, the pain was so infinite. She couldn't do it again to herself and to her family. Now I didn't know this. And there are many times that I've been out where people have said, even when I was actually miscarrying, I was waiting two or three days waiting for the bleeding to stop, but you don't just lock yourself in your bedroom. You still go out. And you know, people are asking you questions and it's no through, through no fault of their own. You and Sim have been together for a while. Have you thought about having your own child? And it would just floor me. So why were you so determined? What was the thing for you? I, I don't mean to sound crass in the question, but I think it's really important because I think a lot of people do give up. I don't think the words they give up. I think they just know what the limit is for their family and for themselves. You know, I've seen some women, the psychological damage that's been done. You hear things like, oh, you could always adopt, like it's the easier option. But, you know, none of it is easy. And that's why these conversations are so vital to understand what a woman's actually going through. A miscarriage mm. isn't like a period where you just bleed and it's over. Nine months later, you can still have the same level of PTSD as a soldier returning from Afghanistan. If that doesn't tell you just how psychologically damaging a miscarriage actually is, imagine going through that and also trying to go about your day. It's crippling. And what are we doing to our women? letting them go mm. through that and actually not even mm. letting that be acknowledged. And what are we doing to our men? The men that don't know how to support the women through this because they're seen as invisible. And, you know, I have, I've had as many messages, if not more so from men than I have from women because they feel like mm. they're finally being seen. I think that what Sim did in the documentary was extremely brave of him because we have our baby. He didn't need to do that, but he was really, really generous to do that. And just say, look, you know, guys suffer this too. And and in this kitchen, he had two friends who came over and it was quite something actually, really pioneering. I was so glad that my girls got to see him and two other men sitting here talking about their wives and the miscarriages that they went through. And the girls were joining in with the conversation. I just thought that is powerful for them to see three men sitting around the kitchen table talking about miscarriage because that's something I hadn't envisaged and and in the documentary, you you go and get some support from a psychoanalyst. Well, I never did it at the start. And I thought, what would have happened if I had done? And we had very different attitudes towards getting help because I thought she thought I should have taken time out. And I thought that, and I still think that if I'd taken time out, I would never got back up. 
Because no matter what happens, the amount of people who were judging why I carried on working, I had a miscarriage on the radio in live time. I don't know what they thought I was going to do. What If you think about it logically, where, where was I supposed to go? Mm-hmm. Run crying from the building and hide under my bed? It wasn't going to make it go away. And I've got children. I came home and my children needed to be dropped at dance class. So I still didn't deal with it. And then after dance, one of them wanted to, to go through her trumpet music and another wanted to, it, you know, life carries on. And that's why it's so brilliant and so cruel simultaneously. And you'll speak to these women and nobody has a miscarriage lying in their bed. Very seldom does it happen that way. It happens in the supermarket. It happens in the car. It happens in the school run. It happens when you're at work. It happens in the food hall, somebody was telling me. You know, it's just, it's horrific. And these women need to be heard. They need to be understood because we dismiss their pain. Isn't that the cruelest thing that we could do to our girls, to our women folk? Dismiss their pain. You wouldn't say if somebody's dad had died, you've still got your mum. Or, uh, you know, you don't, well, at least you can go on holiday now. It's just, what, what are we saying to these girls? What are we saying to our women? Well, I think also the really exceptional thing, as I mentioned at the beginning, that your documentary has done is it's amplified the miscarriage of justice and there's now new legislation coming in to provide better service. I, I think one of the difficulties, Mylene, is that women's bodies, particularly gynecology, I mean, the ovaries were only discovered in the 19th century. So we're fighting a basic gender health gap, which has really impacted the amount of knowledge medics have about miscarriage. I had a friend who had five or six miscarries in a row, and she just demanded and demanded and demanded that they look and find what was, I don't mean wrong with her, but there was clearly in her mind, in her feeling in her heart, there was a medical issue and she had to fight and she had to pay privately to get it seen. It turns out there was a tiny tear. There was a tiny tear, but if she hadn't have fought, and she has now got a child, actually she got her second child because she fought, she, they found the tear it was repaired. And lo and behold, she was able to carry her baby. But the medical world has not been asked to step up and support early enough with miscarriage. What is happening now at government level? What's the new legislation that's going to come in? And what are you excited about? I still can't believe this is happening as a result of a documentary that I didn't think I could film. (laughs) I didn't think I could do it. It's amazing. I I said no three times. And my manager and my best mate, she's had four miscarriages. I've had four miscarriages. And we just both said, we're waiting for this documentary to be made and it needs to be us that make it. So we went ahead and made this. And from it, the most incredible things are happening. Um, I met Olivia Blake, who is such a brave MP. She walked into parliament and she was there with the deputy speaker and mm. at the time, one of the health ministers, Nadine Doris. And I remember at the time watching, because I wasn't allowed to go in because of COVID, how I remember just thinking they looked so vulnerable, just these three women. We've got this parody, haven't we, of what politicians look like with their ties and heckling and sitting there in the House of Commons. And you just think, this, it just didn't look like this. And I went from being really worried about these three women to, at the end of it, feeling really empowered and wondering why we need anybody else. They just got things done. Olivia stood up and said, you know, why are we still waiting? Why do women have to go through three miscarriages consecutively before any kind of attention, um, medical attention is given to them? Mm. So as a result, 
It's going to take a little bit of time. We're still waiting for the second quarter, I believe, of 2022, but already the wheels are in motion. This can't be ignored. I'm in contact with the Royal College of um, Obs and Gynae, and we are just watching how this is going to now unfold. It's been put forward that we wish for women not to have to wait for three consecutive miscarriages, but after the first, because as you rightly pointed out, it could be a tear. This could is, is something that could be avoidable. Also, they're taking into consideration paternal age, because as you rightly pointed out, it's always on the woman. But as I've discovered, the questions need to be asked of the man as well. It wasn't until I had my third miscarriage that they actually said, does Sim drive a truck? Does he cycle a lot? Does he spend a lot of wow. time in the heat? Does he drink a lot? And I'm like, what, 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 what? That the sperm what? might be impacting. Why didn't yeah. I get, but why did nobody, why have I been blaming myself? Not that I needed somebody new to blame. I didn't need anyone to blame. I just needed a solution. And I'm the kind of person that needs a physical solution. Tell me what I can do. Tell me what I can look up and I will go and look it up and find a physical solution. So I've said to my girls, you know, again, this should be taught in school too. It's not all on us women. You can look at what the paternal age of the father is and what his circumstances are. Is he drinking too much? It's not becoming a case of so we can judge, but it's becoming no. a case so we can tweak. Yeah. If a woman is of a certain BMI, they expect her to be able to, to reach a certain BMI to be able to assist herself with, say, pregnancy or whatever else. And the same goes for the guys. It can't all be us on us women when it comes to if they're a truck driver. I'm like, think of all those women who are married to truck drivers right now who are like, mm, you're going to work a lesser shift, my friend, because <laughs> it might be, it, but I didn't even know. I didn't know. I didn't know that if you're, yeah. you're you might think my, you know, my hubby, he's so fit. He's out there cycling every Sunday morning. It could also be having a really damaging effect. Could. I'm not a doctor. I understand. Many men, when they're asked to get tested to see if it is something to do with their sperm count, i.e. not getting pregnant or uh, the quality of the sperm or look at their lifestyle because there's even more stigma to potentially for men. Many men will say, no, they're not. I, I know men that are like, I'm not going to go and get tested. God forbid you question their virility. Yes. God forbid. Yeah. You know, it's like, that's never even been something that's been uh, suggested to either men or women who are going through yeah. these kind of challenges. It should be together, should be together. And it's just facts. It's just fact. I um, when I when I had my first miscarriage, and the doctor said to me, "Look, just go back, try and get pregnant again." And I'm looking at him, wanting to understand why this happened. And he then said, "You know, we, we don't even investigate until the third miscarriage." I didn't worry because I thought there's no way that this is going to happen again because there's no way a body can go through this much pain without something happening there's got to be a reason and then it turned out after my fourth miscarriage the body can go through so much pain it's no this wasn't down to entitlement I want to be really clear about that it was just because I couldn't I had children Sim has children we we, we couldn't understand why this was happening and then I paid to have some tests I mean, it's so fucking wrong that you have to do that, that any woman has to do it, but great. Well done. Well, yeah, and I took, the, I took it into my own hands, but actually when I did pay to have those tests, it, it was actually even harder because there was, say, nothing technically wrong. They told me that the trisomies, that each of my miscarriages, that the reason that I had each of my miscarriages were completely unrelated trisomies, which also, this is another, another podcast. You know, I didn't realise that... We, we test for the main trisomies when you're pregnant. So we know about testing, for example, for, for Down syndrome. But 
we don't test for the hundreds of trisomies that there are. So in my head, again, and maybe it's just because I'm completely naive, I didn't realize there were so many. I didn't realize so many things can go wrong. But here's the thing. It's a miracle that any of us get pregnant. When you realize how many things can actually go wrong, it's a miracle. It's an even bigger miracle. So when I did fall pregnant, finally with Apollo and they were like, let's try, let, you know, we're going to test for these trisomies. And I was like, don't bother, don't bother. Because there are just so many other things, so many things that I don't know to ask the questions. Yeah. And that's yeah. what worries me. It's not the questions I know to ask. It's the questions I don't know to ask. I don't know what else could potentially go wrong. And I don't want to fear. It's not fear mongering. It's just a case of give me some information, prepare our girls, mm-hmm. prepare our boys. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me, one of our uh, incredible women that was uh, in the documentary, she said, you know, we need to tell our boys. And I said, yes, yes, quite right. So that, the, you know, they can support our women folk. And she went, no, not just that. One day, you know, your son could be the doctor delivering this news. And obviously I'm like, oh, my son, the doctor. But she's right. Actually, it's not just because they're going to hold our hands. It's because actually the way this news is delivered, he could be the one saying, mm, we have to wait three more miscarriages until... The entire language needs to change. Blighted over, mm. miscarried, failed. It, 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 everything just sounds negative and it all just sounds like it's on us women. Mm. And yet it's on both of us. Mm. And you've got to give that information to, to, the, to our men as well. You could have a woman who's just living on cabbage soup and living the healthiest lifestyle she possibly can in order to try and, and get pregnant. And if her partner is... Again, this is not doctor's rules, but if her partner's living a completely different lifestyle, again, you wouldn't know. I wouldn't have known. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's a really exciting time that we're moving into, I think, for the the future generations. Can you imagine 2022, how amazing would it be that we have that bill passed, that we have, that women will be able to have, if they have one miscarriage, it will be looked into immediately, that paternal age will be a consideration, that there will be psychological help for our families that need to go through this already. The workplace is looking at what the position is on on where they stand for women who are going through miscarriages and and on their partners as well. And I just hope that we're going to look back at this time like we look back at women who weren't allowed to work like myself when they were pregnant or working mothers, you know, that evil curse on society that we're, we're going to look back like, can you believe we spoke about or thought, thought that that was okay? Because it, it's not okay. And it feels like it's a final thing that just hasn't been tweaked. Yeah. Oh, really inspiring, Mylene, just from the documentary. And you, you've mentioned you met some really amazing women. You spoke to a woman who has the amazing child free podcast and the women runners, the, the, you know, the women that who've had the, the community group where they run women who've experienced miscarriage. What, what would you say are your top three things that you took away from it? So if someone is having to face either one or recurring loss of a baby or hasn't someone hasn't been able to have children. So we have a huge amount of child-free women who are part of the Happy Regina community. What were the three nuggets that you thought, yeah, I wish I'd known that back then? I think first and foremost, we have to listen to them. We don't have to fix them. Women don't always need to be fixed. You can't take the pain of a death away. And whether that's a a mother or a father or a loved one or or a baby, you can't take that pain away. And we've got to just try, even as women, we've got to try to stop trying to fix everybody. 
just let them speak, let them tell you, let them tell their story, let them tell you how they're feeling and just listen. If you're tempted to start a sentence with at least stop, just stop. Because there's nothing you can say to make this person feel better. Nothing. I didn't realize that. Well, I do realize very much so now. There is no time limit. There's no time limit on grief. There was one woman that I spoke to whose mother-in-law was coming down that weekend to take the wallpaper down in the nursery because she couldn't do it. And that nursery was then going to be turned into an office. And I just thought, you know, that woman's going to have to walk into that office every single day and know it was, it was meant to be her nursery. Are you going to say that that woman, because her miscarriage was at eight weeks, at least it wasn't a baby. At least, there is, there is no words that are going to make that pain go away. And I thought the image of her was so visceral. The idea of the grandmother that never got to be taking down that wallpaper. So again, you know, we have this idea of grief and it's not so linear. It's quite a complicated, it's quite complex how grief hits all of us and catches all of us. And also I think the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm a mixed race girl that no one expected very much from who grew up in Norfolk, was in a pop band. And now I'm getting to lobby the government and change medical law for generations of women to come. Yes. That feels pretty yes, empowering. Last question, Mylene. What makes your vagina happy today? Oh, today. I mean, like at the minute, everything just seems to be running okay. I'm hanging on for dear life. <laughs> I think it's just the fact that, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm not expecting too much from it or anybody else. <laughs> just trying to just hang in there and just let the day happen. I think um, when you're in your 20s and when you've got all that amazing ambition and that drive um, and you're looking for somewhere to put it, isn't it funny that actually it's it's not about the pace of it all? Here I am. It's a different pace for me now. And and I realized that I will never get to the bottom of that job list. I have this job list every single day. I never get to the bottom of it. But it's, it is also true in my part that, you know, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child and everybody got to school okay. And 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 the rest of the day will just unfold as it is. I'm just, just I, I take it a lot easier on myself. I'm a lot kinder to myself now than I think I ever was. And even though my body's been through it all, I've got a lot to say thank you to it for. I'm not looking at it in a judgy way anymore. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. So openly and honestly with us, Miley, and it's been a, a really important episode. Thank you. 